Hello and welcome to the next SciFlix at the Belgrave. So we're chatting today with uh, Dr. Tommy Leung, uh, who's a parasitologist and lecturer here at UNE. And he's going to be speaking with the next film that we've got for SciFlix, Thursday, uh, the 22nd of... What month are we in? September. September, I think, yeah. <laughs> September 2022, I think that's September the year. September <laughs> 22nd. It's a Thursday evening, 6 p.m. Be there, be square. Tommy's going to be speaking with Alien, which yeah, I'm very excited right. about. Well, about the film Alien, I guess. <laughs> Not with Alien. Sorry, I haven't made first contact yet. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So Tommy's going to be speaking to the the biological and parasitic sort of themes yeah, in Alien. Yeah, like what's what's the deal with the xenomorph, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm so excited. <laughs> I think Alien was the like the main film that I really wanted to have screened. Oh, with I mean, how, how could you not? Like, you know, <laughs> it's a classic film. It's like a classic like horror sci-fi film. So, yeah. you know, I, I can't imagine having anything like that and not ever showing alien yeah you know? absolutely and i guess because at the for the cyflix at the belgrave i can i ask for um i ask for films but i don't always get them it just mm. depends on their um screening rights and things like that oh, yeah. so you know i would just sort of threw alien into the mixer with my fingers crossed yep. and i knew that you would speak with it i oh, can't yeah. i put it <laughs> put it down sort of going <laughs> i know tommy would do that one um, okay, so um, with these chats, I like to sort of at the beginning talk about you and your research yep, and sure. how you got into where you are now, and then we'll unpack some of the stuff about the um, the film later. Okay. Um, uh, so, firstly, can you um, explain a little bit about your research area and okay. how you got into what you do? Yeah, so my research area is generally looking at like the evolutionary ecology of parasites. So basically, what how parasites got to be the way they are and like why they do the things they do. So a lot of my recent studies include looking at the community compositions of parasites in different kinds of animals. So looking at like a particular taxonomic group of animals, let's say, for example, lizards or birds, and look at like the properties that lend them to like, lend some to have more parasites than others. So there are some species that have like, dozens of species of different parasitic worms living inside of them. Some other species only have like one or two. What is it about those particular animals that makes them more likely to be infected by more different kinds of parasites? So whether it's like what they eat, where they live, how they live and stuff like that. So that's the thing that I've most recently been doing, mostly looking at like the communities of parasites. Uh, I'm also interested in like parasite life cycle, but that is a particularly tricky field of research simply because when you find parasites with complex life cycle, you usually find like one of their life cycle stages. And it is like a really difficult task to find the other ones because first of all, you don't know how they look like, where they might be found, uh, what their prevalence is. Like, is it uh, the next stage? Is it like one in a hundred of the next hoses is like one in two and you don't know which the next host is so you have to make educated guess based on the existing literature wow. so it's it's kind of almost like astronomy in a way like trying to find <laughs> wow. a particular star it's finding yeah it's like finding a star a special like particular kind of star mm. like a supernova or whatever that you are specifically looking for for your research needle topic. in a haystack yeah needle wow. in a haystack so um that's what like a lot of parasitology are like because 
Whereas with like free living organism, you see like, oh, there's a kangaroo there. There's a kangaroo. It's like, okay, well, does the kangaroo have like the parasite that I'm after? Yes. And in some cases, many of the animals I'm looking at are like snails and things like that. So it's like, okay, is the right snail there? And in that case, like, do they have the parasite? You know, it could be one in a thousand or wow. something like that. So yeah, that the life cycle stuff is trickier. Whereas with mm-hmm. the community stuff, it's more like I can collect data from the literature yeah. and do meta analysis and stuff. Yeah, cool. And so with the um, the community stuff, is it that um, uh, an organism or a group is that is more susceptible to having a huge parasite load? Do they are they usually the ones with the lowered fitness and? Um, or, or is it not? Like, not, there- Yeah, not necessarily. It seems like there are like various different reasons why certain, um, in, like certain species have like more parasites living on them. Uh, and this occurs on both like an individual level as well as like on a different species, like taxonomic uh-huh. level as well. And it's usually relating to like how they live. So they might live in environments or live have habits that lend them to like infection more. So for example, living in groups, mm-hmm. so they're more likely to be infected by parasites that are you know, proximity transmitted mm-hmm. or like the diet. So for example, uh, carnivorous animals, especially carnivorous animals that have a wide ranging diet, they tend to have like a wider variety of parasites living inside of them simply because there are many parasites, the one with the complex life cycle, actually take advantage of these like trophic interaction, like food uh-huh. chain interactions to get inside with the host. So they would often have larval stages that infect prey animals, like little crustaceans, little mm-hmm. fish, little amphibians. Yeah. And then they rely on them existing as prey for these predators to infect the it's predators. It's so interesting and so complicated. Like yeah. it's almost beyond like understanding how it could possibly evolve. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, well, this is like some interesting clue. Like the, the tricky thing with like studying like the evolution of parasites is that they don't leave very good fossil records. Yeah, exactly. I've written like two publications that like are reviewing over like what kind of you know what can the fossil record tell us about parasites in fact i think one of them was titled like what can the fossil record tell us about parasitism and one of the things that like we can see is that we have to use like living examples Mm -hmm. for like to infer like how it might have evolved so there are certain kinds of parasitic worms like um acanthocephalans the thorny-headed worm they do this thing known as post-cyclic transmission where if, let's say, you know, they're living perfectly happily as like adult worms inside the body of a small fish, if the small fish get eaten by a larger fish, they can transfer themselves onto the larger fish. Now, this is a kind of a last-ditch like insurance survival mechanism. Uh, otherwise, they would go well, out of yes. the way to go into the large fish. But you can imagine like if they find themselves in large fish and the ones that find themselves in the larger fish happen to have high reproductive fitness because it's a larger fish, Mm -hmm. it provides them with more resources, then that might then get incorporated as like a obligate part or like a fixed part of the life cycle. It Mm -hmm. started out as like a facultative thing where like, oh, if the opportunity comes up, just roll with it. But (laughs) then it turned into like, oh, let's do this like for real. Let's do this like on a continuing basis. So it's possible that many of these life cycle got added First of all, as a you know survival mechanism for the parasite to like mm-hmm. survive, like opportunistic have, yeah. sort of scenario. Yeah, having the host being eaten by a larger predator is like well, it'll be advantageous for them if they could mm-hmm. survive the process of their original host dying yeah. and somehow surviving in that larger host. But 
the larger hosts might provide more resource. So why not make that mm-hmm. like a fixed route? Why yeah. develop into an adult in the smaller animal when you can wait until you can get more resources Amazing. in the larger animal? So it's possible based on what we know about the life cycle of these things that it's, you know, it has to start from a simple life cycle. Yep. It has to start from infect, infecting only a single host. And then it kind of like, I guess you could say they upgrade the way yeah. the, up the food chain. Uh-huh. That's right. Um, and I think uh, maybe we should maybe define a parasite as well because um, uh, uh, there are all sorts of really complex yeah. interactions mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. animals that kind of live on and yep. inside each other. And I don't know if it's necessarily parasitism. Yeah. So maybe we should yeah, unpack so that. So like, that, that is like an essay question that is a question that like books have been written about okay so, so you've got a minute yep so parasitism is basically interactions where generally speaking you have like an organism that is living on or with another organism at their expense oh, and like yeah. they don't give anything in return so this differentiated from like mutualism where you have mm-hmm. two parties living together and they provide mutual benefits to what's each a, other what's a good mutualism uh okay. well and a good example of that would be uh Let's say, for example, uh, clownfish and sea anemones. Right. So clownfish, uh, they get protection from the sea anemones, and it seems that the feces produced by the clownfish actually fertilize the oh. algae that are living inside the sea anemone. So cool. that would be an example of like mutualism. Another example is like with oxpeckers. Yep. Oxpecker get like ticks to eat, but yes. well, you know the mammals get clean. However, that's actually a really good example to lead into parasitism, because there are red-billed oxpeckers. They actually are like they what they really want are blood. Oh, Ticks no. happen to be like really convenient packets of oh, blood. Wow. So when <laughs> they, they come across yeah, so when they come across mammals that have like an open wound, they would actually peck on it. Oh, so they would actually so they bleed a bit. Yeah, then. yeah, yeah. So they hinder mm. the wound healing of a lot of these animals. So mm. in that case, it's like well, when they're eating ticks, they're mutualists. When they are being doing that thing, they are like blood sucking parasites. parasites. <laughs> so that would like I think that is kind of the central like how I want to lead into the question of like what is yeah. a parasite because it is very much context dependent, and you have a variety of different kinds of interaction. Mm-hmm actions as well um there's another example where predation and like so some people see like micro predation so for example things like mosquitoes and fleas and leeches and stuff like that but micro predation can also be considered as like a kind of a form of parasitism Mm -hmm. because you have certain things that are called micro parasites no micro predators Mm -hmm. that are core parasites Mm -hmm. Uh, so leeches and things like that uh, so in those particular cases, it's kind of really difficult to like draw the yeah. clear line between like, okay, is this a predator? Is it a parasite? One very telling example of this is this very weird species of uh, snail, like whelk, predatory whelk, and they feed on oysters. But what they do is that they latch onto an oyster and they feed on it over the course of like about 80 to 100 something days, Whoa. very, very slowly. They That's ex- horrific. Yeah, they <laughs> extend the feeding tube into like they drill a hole through them, feed on the oyster, but they do it very, very slowly and they are very careful to avoid the adductor muscle that holds the shell together. So they try to keep the oyster alive for as long as wow, possible. It's like surgery. Yeah. As well. So wow. it's like in that particular case, it's like, well, is it predation or is it parasitism when it's staying on there for so long? Oh yeah, so, that is a grey area, isn't it? So yeah, that's why like I try to tell well people and also like my students all the time that we have these categories that we made up to try to make sense of nature and the world 
but nature don't care about our arbitrary category that we've <laughs> decided to make up. So, for example, like a tapeworm living inside like an otherwise healthy person, they might not even notice it if they're not under like any stressful condition. They have like supply of food and mm-hmm. everything's good. They might not even notice that they have a tapeworm living inside of them. So in that case, it's like, well, the tapeworm's not actually causing any harm to the host, which is usual definition of what okay, parasitism yeah. is. Is it like, then does it become a commensal or does it become like, you know, yeah. is it still a parasite? But the thing is that the tapeworm don't care. The tapeworm just like, I'm just hanging out and like <laughs> absorbing nutrient and producing eggs like I'm not supposed to do. So nature don't really care yes. about like our definition of like, you know, what is a parasite? So that's why I also study like a wide range of different things because as you can see, there's a wide range of different organisms, not just animals I've talked about, but like plants and mm-hmm. fungi that do a lifestyle called Parasitism. So that's what makes parasitology for me anyway, as I view parasitology as such a like peculiar and weird yeah. field because there's no there's no one out there studying like carnivorology or no. herbivorology as a thing, <laughs> as a unified <laughs> discipline. But that's yeah. kind of how I view it as well. I just find these things that live on other things particularly fascinating. But it's a, it sounds like a wonderful lens through which to study evolution, yeah, like uh, in a broad sense. Yeah, and know. to study nature and yeah. the kind of interactions that yeah. you see in nature. I'm, I was fascinated by your suggestion. I've kind of said that we should talk about this, about the um, the fossil record of parasitism. Yep. Um, and there was a paper that some of my colleagues published a few years ago about mm-hmm. kleptoparasitism yes. yep, yep. in the Cambrian. So this stuff is over 500 million mm-hmm. years old. And um, they have these, I've seen, the, I've seen the fossils, they're from China and they're, they're shell beds with these very small brachiopods all over the bedding surface. And all of the shells of the brachiopods are encrusted with tube worms. Yes. And, um, and they published this article saying that this is the first instance of what they call kleptoparasitism mm-hmm. in the fossil record. But you said, I think you, did you review well, it or no? You, no, I was interviewed by a reporter for right, my yeah. comments about it. Uh, one of the things they suggested was that they're more commonly found on the smaller one and they infer that as like, the tube worm stealing food, yeah, like reducing their fitness. fitness. Yeah, but food, um, right. one of the things that are difficult about this, and this applies not just to fossils, but also to like living, you know, animals, living examples, is that the arrow of causality is like, is it small? Like, is it small because of the tube worm, or it just so happened to be that way, or like the tube worm for whatever reason prefer to live on like the mm-hmm. smaller ones, or maybe as they grow, the tube worm get like dislodged or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's difficult to infer like whether the tube worms responsible for making them small, or were they just small to start with, and the yeah. tube worms tend to just hang out on them. Yeah, and so. I guess they they called it kleptoparasitism yep, because yep. the the they said that the tube worms were yep. stealing the food. Yep, yep, Is yep. that right? So yeah, that's a whole thing that involved like a wide range of different animals, including things like frigate birds engage oh. in it quite a lot. Uh, there are some flies that specialize in it. There is a type of fly called mugger flies, which <laughs> goes up to ants and literally force them to regurgitate food. Oh, no. That's how they live. They oh. mug ants. So yeah, kleptoparasitism, there's like a whole, that's a whole group of like different organisms, not including a lot of organisms that most people don't usually think of when they think of parasites that engage in this particular lifestyle called kleptoparasitism, yeah. where wow. they just steal food or things like that wow. from other animals. I think... 
it was difficult potentially for them to show. I mean, they did show, I think, using statistics that the small ones, you know, did have the high load of those mm-hmm. tube worms. But, yeah, difficult, like you said, to say that it couldn't be just be, I think, commensalism. Yeah. Is that or, where one's just living on the yeah, other? Yeah, that's right, yeah. They just hang out. Yeah, and you and it's difficult to infer that it was the tube worm responsible for mm. them being smaller as opposed to some other factors. Because I know for a fact that it's difficult even with, like, living animals. Mm-hmm. If you come across an animal that have a high parasite load and they, you know, you infer things about it. It's like, is it the parasite responsible for it? Or is it like mm. they have a lot of parasite because they were already like this in the first place? So yeah. that's why, like, you know, I think my comments to the reporter was the same. It's like, it's difficult to find the connection. It's like, is it really causal or not? Yeah. And I think it's difficult. It's probably a really difficult thing to study the the long-term evolution of in the fossil yeah. record because... Um, are a lot of parasites soft and yeah, living they don't, inside they, the Yeah, soft they don't tissue. leave fossils very, very yeah. well. We have very few fossils of like parasites. I think one of the, I guess, better fossils is uh, from a coprolite that was from the Permian period from a shark. Wow. And they uh, they found that there were, when they did like cross-sections on it, they found like tapeworm egg fossils in it. Wow. And the interesting thing about it is that the tapeworm eggs and the segments they found in there rather resembles the one that today I found in sharks. Oh, wow. So they like most people when they use the term living fossils, they talk about things like coelacanths and stuff yeah. like that. It's just like, no, well, I guess in this case, like sharks that are found in tapeworms, uh, sh- shark tapeworms, yeah. those are also, you can yeah. think of them as like living fossils. If coelacanths can be living fossils, those guys can be living fossils for as sure. well. And that's kind of one of the most remarkable thing that like, wow, they've been doing this yeah. for so long and they like it must be a really successful lifestyle because yeah. they haven't really changed how they look like. And they must have evolved like, because, you know, the difference between a tapeworm and the closest living, free living relative flatworms are really different. So something must have happened like mm-hmm. ages and ages before the Cambrian that turned them into these like, you know, long bits of segments of reproductive yeah. organs that they are now so so and we don't know like how they got there there are like some you know studies done on like the genes that might have been responsible mm-hmm. for changing the arrangement of their body but like we don't know what you know what are the intermediate forms of a tapeworm uh, between that and a free living flatworm we don't know because there's no the fossil evidence there's no good fossils Isn't that remarkable yeah. and and it feeds into what you were saying earlier about how complex some of mm-hmm. the life cycles are yeah. as well like to evolve such complexity this the the process or the system must have been going on for a long time yep 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 um so, yeah, it's super interesting. Yeah, I would say that, like, <clears throat> parasitism as a lifestyle has probably been around since this life. Yeah. Like, you know, this, since this life, there are lives that take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. I think there are, like, people who've done, like, simulations oh, of, like, yeah. life where they found that parasitism just kind of evolve yeah. in a way to take advantage of, like, other organisms by... And they do similar things to what we see in, like you know, real life parasites, especially the microscopic ones where they start shedding a lot of their own genes because they can co-opt the gene functions of the host to do the things that they, like, you know, metabolic processes and stuff like that they would normally do. Is that a good segue to talk about aliens? Well, I guess it could be because you did (laughs) mention, like, ask about, like, what are the 
parasitic on the qualities yeah, of the house. Yeah, that's right. So um, there are some examples of that, uh, mostly among plant parasites. Wow. So parasitic plants. Yeah. So mistletoes, often a phenomena that has been observed is that they mimic the host plants, like wow. the foliage of the host plants. Uh, but in terms of like transferring genes and stuff like that, that has been documented in some holoparasitic plants. So holoparasites are plants that are non-photosynthetic. And they just basically wow. go like, hey, you know, the thing that plants are known for, not forget <laughs> that, we're going to be different. We're going to just completely get rid of that from our identity and we become parasites. And most of the time, you only see them when it's the flowering parts that come mm-hmm. out, either from the ground or from the stem of the host. And some of them have been found to actually have like large scale kind of functional horizontal gene transfer wow. with the host where they like take on the genes of the host. And it's not sure whether it plays any like functional host like role in the genomes, mm-hmm. but like, yeah, they do that like quite often where they take the genetic material of the host. Not sure what they actually do with it. Yeah, but, how that um, works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, that was, I think, biologically something kind of a bit complicated about Alien and the whole... Um, uh, alien series of films because uh well part of yeah. it's probably due to <clears throat> retcon and fan fiction and like i i think that <laughs> kind of really spoil it because like with alien like the whole mystique with alien initially is just that it is so something that's so weird and mm. strange and mysterious and then you got like I think I think that um, alien, like the xenomorph have lost a lot of its punch over the mm. years simply because it's be- appeared in so many you know media properties. It's become such a recognizable thing. And like the thing about horror and monsters is that often it plays on the unknown. Indeed. So in the original film, you don't actually see the alien all that much. You spend the whole time dreading yeah. this thing that's going to pop out of who knows where. But you don't actually see it all that often. And that's what make like the brief appearance that they make just have like such an impact. That's the difference between, you know, like, well, that's what separates like really genius horror. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I've like, for example, I've watched like horror movies or like play actually horror games where like next to nothing really happened. But the whole time you have this lingering sense of dread. Uh, one of the best ones um, is probably there's this uh, little indie developer. Uh, she calls herself Kitty Horror Show, and she made this game called Anatomy, and it's about you in a house and you're grabbing cassette tape to play on a tape player in the kitchen. But like you, when you play it, you just have this lingering sense of dread because you're in this dark house, and the 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 tapes become gradually more and more sinister and you know the house is dark there's no light on you're going into these different rooms to try to grab tapes to play them and the tape gets more and more weird and the house is getting more and more weird oh my god yeah like well, I, I couldn't do that with my spare time <laughs> yeah but like that game it's like it's genius that game was so fantastic because it's like there is no jump scare there's right. no like you know, Friday Night Freddy jump scare thing. Right, right. It's just you're just constantly like something On awful is happening the whole time, and that seems to be a recurring theme with like some of that particular creators' yeah. game. It's just like it's you are in an environment that is like hostile yes. to you, and that's actually how it's very par- much yeah. like the film. Yeah, and yeah. that's 
that's actually how parasites like their life is like because they live <laughs> in an environment that is inherently hostile to them. Oh. They have the host immune system that's trying to get oh, rid of yeah. them all the time. Wow. So um, you know, many parasites have evolved ways of like bypassing the immune system, but they live in an inherently hostile environment. It's actually an extremely difficult way of life. Right. And um, so let's talk about the, the, the xenomorph, the yep. alien's life cycle mm-hmm. um, as a parasite. Yeah, yeah. Does it all make sense from a parasitologist yeah, point is, of view? Um, there is like some overlaps actually with real things. So for example, the face hugger part, you know, it's like the face hugger. They yeah. latch onto someone and then inject the egg into yeah, it yeah. and then it drops off. So that, is it an egg? Because I think it doesn't, doesn't the face it hugger hatches, hatches from an egg, egg and, then and then it lays something lay, yeah, inside, yeah, something inside the host. The so there is something that's comparable to that and there's like parasitic barnacles that infect crabs called rhizocephalon the most well-known species is one called sacculina carcini but there's many different like dozens of different species of them uh they infect the crab they don't look like barnacles like they look like basically they have two parts they have the internal part Mm. which are these root systems that are wrapped around the crab's internal organs and then they have this external part which is this bulbous stuff which is the reproductive organ that extrudes from the crab that's a barnacle and so how it gets there is that they have like they lay eggs that then hatch into the usual crustacean stage, anoplii. And then the anoplii, instead of doing the usual barnacle thing where they stick themselves onto a rock, they stick themselves onto a crab, and then they ex- they have this little hypodermic syringe that they punch into the weak part of the crab's exoskeleton, and then they inject a blob of cells which are the actual barnacle itself that then grow oh, in the like the blood system, body system of the crab into the barnacle. Wow. So that's kind of comparable to like yeah. the face hugger and everything because the that particular stage, the nuclei stage, the chendrogen stage, that just drops up afterwards. Like oh, that is right. the okay, shell. That the, yeah, that's yeah. the shell of the barnacle. The barnacle is a blob of cells. That lives inside. Yeah, yeah, that is inside of it. And it doesn't... Does it burst out of it just like like the chest burst is seen in well, the Well, it does film? something worse because like oh. it has this thing that grows out of the belly of the crab oh, and the crab actually changes its behavior and phenotype in response. So for example, male crabs that get infected actually not just start taking on like female crab behavior but also like the morphology change they get feminized oh. by the parasite wow. because what the parasite's trying to do is that when it lays eggs it actually take advantage of the parental care behavior of the crab. So the crabs start, you know, cleaning it oh. and aerating it and oh, protecting it and doing oh other God. things it would do for its own baby crabs, but it's for this brood of like parasitic barnacle. <laughs> and that is like, that's more horrifying than anything that xenomorphs are capable that of doing. That is amazing. So do you think like from what, like knowing um, or having seen the films, do you think that the alien and all of its life cycle was inspired by parasites? Um, I'm not really sure. I feel like the directors, they probably were going for, for something mm-hmm. i know that like for example there's a lot of um i'm not really entirely familiar with the background but mm-hmm. like they were going for a certain kind of imagery like mm-hmm. body violation and all that kind of stuff as well so i don't know whether they have independently arrived upon this particular way of like showing that um but it's just that in nature there are things that are doing that on yeah. like a daily basis like parasitoid wasps for example oh, i think yeah. charles darwin that was one of the things that made charles darwin go like there is no benevolent god <laughs> because they're like you know if a, if god wants to have some way of like keeping checks on like you know 
moths that are chewing away at, ca- at cabbages and stuff like that, like the caterpillars, surely there is like a less cruel way of doing so than to have moths that lay the eggs inside the caterpillars and like slowly eat them from the inside out. Like they actually eat them in a very orderly manner. They start off by sipping the hemolymph, the, the equivalent of blood. And then they eat like the fat bodies and then the gonads before they start moving on to like the more vital life support system right, because they're, they're trying to kill them straight away. Yeah, exactly. And then by the time they get to like the really vital part, they're ready to pupate. But even oh. then they're not done with it because a lot of the times with what these parasitoids do is that it's a whole brood of them and they're all kind of asexual clones. They're like these many polyembryonic wasps. And one of them stay behind to take on the driver's seat of the <laughs> caterpillar. And the caterpillar then, as the wasps are pupating, actually sit on top of the pupating cocoon and weave a web over it and sit on it like a brooding hen to protect it. So once again, this is going far beyond yeah. what like the xenomorph is capable do, yeah, of doing. Imagine like having a chestburster and then having the person who have the chestburster like yeah. take care of it Caring like a baby. For it. You know? Yeah, weaving so, a little like cocoon for yeah, him. Yeah, so oh basically a lot of like the real life parents like, actually do things that are like far more viscerally horrifying than yeah. the xenomorph. Well, we are running out of time. I'm so sorry, but yeah. I do have one last little thing I wanted sure. to hit you with, which is that parasitism seems like such a gr- such great fodder for horror films. Yeah, yeah. But like, could it could parasitism be an inspiration for a different type of film, a comedy, perhaps there drama? Is a, there is a film um, called Upstream Color. Okay, and the brief of it is is that it's about these group of people who are connected to each other via being infected by this particular type of parasite um i haven't seen the film but like reading the synopsis of it it seems like there is some kind like it it deals with like life cycle and how that connects like the people there seem to be some kind of underground criminal business going on with like the transferring of these particular parasites there's pigs there's orchids there's all kinds of like really weird things going on and it's about these people who find connections with each other through the sheer experience of like having these parasites um as for comedy i run the um social media account i'm I'm the social media manager for journal of helminthology a parasitology journal and because i'm on twitter I think about a third or half of my tweets are basically like memes about Parasite. <laughs> so they're like com- like Parasite com- comedy, but like they're told from the perspective of like the Parasites a lot of the times. Oh, fantastic. Um, and that's kind of what makes it, because I find that if you were to make good comedy about a topic, even about like taboo topics or like sensitive yeah. topic, it's better if it's from someone who is from that particular group or uh-huh. for like someone who is from that particular perspective. Yep. And that's kind of what makes like, I guess comedy that comes from like, you know, crass comedians who get Netflix special that punches down. That's what makes them not funny. Not just because <laughs> it's like offensive, but it's just not yeah. funny because they don't know the true experience. Yeah. You know, they can't get at like the deep weeds right. of like what makes that particular experience funny. They can only go with like, you know, stereotypes. So you think you know. we need to really understand life from a parasite's perspective? Yeah, yeah. In order to, really... to make comedy yeah. about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have to go and check out your Twitter then. Yeah. <laughs> What's your handle? Uh, it's at uh, the underscore Episiarch. Okay. So yeah, it's a T-H-E underscore E-P-I-S-I-A-R-C-H. <laughs> um, yeah, it might be even on my like 
profile on, on the the UNE website. I'm not sure, but I got an influx of followers recently because I got featured in a popular Tumblr post. Someone mentioned me oh, on a Tumblr post that was like a rather t- popular Tumblr blog. Um, and that's because I draw these like parasite monster girls. Oh, so yeah, I got yeah, featured yeah. in this post and then like it got like really, really popular and I got a whole bunch of followers. And it was really funny when I was told by one of my students that her friend from America told her and then that the screenshot of that post got shared on Instagram, which attracted oh. another wave of followers. But like they didn't realize that I'm like a researcher and everything like that. So they thought that, oh, that's just the person who draws the parasite monster girl. What do you mean? Like, in fact, they were saying like, oh, what a coincidence. They were saying to my student, oh, what a coincidence. This person who draw parasite monster girl happened to have the exact same name as the young lecturer. <laughs> and, uh, and like my student was like, no, no, you don't understand. That guy. is actually my lecturer. <laughs> that's the same person, you know, who draw parasite monster girl. What do you mean? It's like, yeah, they write a blog about it. They publish papers about this yeah, thing. Yeah, <laughs> they understand the situation. Um, well, we'll have to do some more sharing of you on um, on our well I think that you probably need to share us because it sounds like you have a, <laughs> um, a more um, fulsome social media following than Cyflix um, but anyway it could be mutually beneficial oh perhaps. yeah well <laughs> drop me a link and I'll, I'll share it you know cool all right we'll wrap up thank you so much Tommy and I'm really looking forward to Alien next week yeah thanks for having me on <laughs> cheers cheers <laughs>